Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a new documentary podcast about video games and the video game industry as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss and this is episode two, Air Fight. It's hard to remember it now, even for people old enough to have lived it. But there was once a time when, outside of things like Space Invaders, Pac-Man and Mario, the best-selling, most exciting video games were flight simulators. They were at the cutting edge of technology, an awe-inspiring culmination of real-time movement, 3D graphics and huge worlds of seemingly infinite possibility. Chief among these was Flight Simulator by a company called Sublogic. At a time when you had a bestseller if you came close to 100,000 sales across all computer platforms, Flight Simulator sold millions, hundreds of thousands of copies every year, and never far from the top 10 best-selling software products of any particular month. From its first release back in 1980, all the way through to a culture and technology shift in the late 1990s. But several years before any of that happened, and a few years before Sublogic founder Bruce Artwick even had the idea to create a flight simulator for the ordinary computer user to play in their home, there was AirRace. To set the scene a little, this was the early 1970s, when computers were mysterious, hulking giants. Most would barely fit in your bedroom, let alone on your desk or in your hands. And to use them, you'd punch holes in some cards that you then gave to a technician who would queue up the program to run in a batch of operations, along with all the programs queued up by all these other people that same day. Then a day or two later, you could come back and they'd have a printout ready for you, showing the results that the computer spat out, or maybe an error if you had a bug in the program logic. But there were also computers that had small graphical terminals that people could sit at, sized not unlike the personal computers of the following decade. You could type directly into these terminals, which might have even been hundreds or thousands of kilometres away from the mainframe that served as their brain. And you'd get the results of your program more or less straight away, One of these was called PLATO. Short for Programmed Logic for Automatic Teaching Operations, PLATO was first introduced in 1960 as the brainchild of Donald Bitzer, a 26-year-old electrical engineering whiz kid and a lab assistant in the physics department at the University of Illinois. He got the idea of a computer-based education system from Chalmers Schoen and Daniel Alpert, both of whom had the previous year been central to an ultimately fruitless discussion about a similar concept. By 1972, Plato had gone through three major revisions to allow for multiple simultaneous users, the design of lessons through a special programming language called Tutor, and with Plato 4, that could handle both fast vector line drawing and rudimentary bitmapped graphics just like the ones that you saw in the personal computer era. And at $12,000 a terminal, with around a 1,000 terminals hooked up to each computer, Plato was ready for wide release in schools, universities, and military installations all around America, and eventually overseas as well. 
Plato's parent company, Control Data Corporation, and most of the universities with Plato terminals hired students to help write new Plato programs, or lessons, as they were more commonly known, for use in high school and college courses, as well as other practical things. And courtesy of a directive from Don Bitzer himself, Control Data gave these Plato programmers and operators the freedom to try things, to do whatever they wanted to do with the technology, just to see what it was capable of. Pretty soon, people started to figure out that they could use the tutor language to write lessons that were, to all intents and purposes, games. There were role-playing games based on Dungeons and Dragons, basic little educational games, a complex 3D multiplayer space game called Space Sim, a 2D space strategy game called Empire, and lots of other things that I may cover in future episodes. One of the earliest games was called Air Race. It was a simple flight simulator written by Silas Warner, whose name you may recognise if you're familiar with 1980s computer games. He's most famous for writing Castle Wolfenstein, an influential stealth game in which players had to help a spy escape from Nazi imprisonment and steal their war plans. Id Software's seminal first-person shooter Wolfenstein 3D was first conceived as a sort of 3D remake of that game. But that's another story. Right now, around 1972 or 73, Silas Warner was a Plato operator at Indiana University. Here's Brand Fortner, who was studying physics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign at the time, and was working in the university's computer-based education research lab, where he programmed Plato lessons for schoolchildren that were designed by teacher and educational psychologist. Bonnie Sila. And he had written a, a very nice uh, little game where you were a uh, you were in an airplane and you could control the speed and the bite and, and whatnot. I understand that the we had maybe ten thousand instructions per second, which included the graphical calculations. So there was very little processing power uh, available for this. To quickly put that in modern context. The original PlayStation game console, released in 1994, could do 30 million instructions per second, which is around 3,000 times more. The latest computers and games machines do tens of billions of instructions per second, usually with a separate chip for graphics calculations. So while it was very fast back then, 10,000 instructions per second for everything is barely a drop in the ocean now. And basically, you could just fly around a virtual space. But for us, virtual space were a series of lines and dots, not like, like it is today. Silas Warner was, was not a pilot. And so his simulation, Air Ace, basically was very simplistic in terms of its calculations. In other words, as you increased your throttle, you increased your speed. If you pointed up, you went up. If you pointed down, you went down. Uh, so, so not... It didn't fly like an airplane, it was just a, it was like a game. When I saw that, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be nice if we could actually do the true flight equations to do this? Uh, and I went to the library and 
uh, Xeroxed off a bunch of uh, uh, documents from uh, the Link Simulator Company, a company that made some of the uh, first uh, simulators and looked at the equations that they used to calculate the parameters for flight. Uh, and at that time, I was also working with another physics major who was at Plato named Kevin Gorey. The two of them simplified and optimized the equations from the simulator, which had actually used an analog computer and various cranks and gears and pulleys and instrument panels. They had one bit of good luck to help them along. The Plato terminals were connected to a mainframe that was optimized for floating point calculations. This means that it could handle decimal points right out of the box without any need to hack in computationally expensive workarounds. And this was crucial for pulling off the complex trigonometric and aerodynamic equations required by a decent simulation. After a few months or so, they had it going. A flight simulator that could run on a computer terminal and that used real flight equations. So you really could stall the plane and things behaved more or less as they would in a a real plane. Uh, The graphics were similar. Again, we were limited by computer power, so we had lines uh, representing runways and points representing objects on the ground. We then added the ability to for the pilots to interact with each other and shoot each other down with missiles. And the calculations for that were fairly simple. I just saw if there was a straight line between the airplanes and you hit F for fire, then we saw, you know, if the plane was close enough and he says, okay, you shot him down. And that was the beginning of it. I want to quickly pause the story here to take a moment to ask that if you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing it on social media, reviewing it on iTunes, and signing up for a monthly pledge on Patreon, where I'll be posting ad-free episodes and lots of bonus stuff. Head to lifeandtimes.games/patreon for more information. I'll remind you again later, but for now, on with the show. Airfight was decades ahead of its time. You could talk to other players in real time through text chat. Players could form teams or play in a free-for-all battle to shoot down the most planes. And despite the bare-bones visuals, there was a great sense of immersion. You were in this world. It was slow, and you were always having to wait for the next tick of the processor that would advance the action. But it was so easy to ignore shortcomings like this. When you had an actual 3D world, and you were piloting the virtual plane within it. You know, for me and for other people who grew up in the era of computers with punch cards, it just literally blew our minds. It was, it was like watching a, a like Toy Story must have blown people's minds when they saw it. Or, or in the 80s when we saw the movie Tron. It, you know, the fact that computers could actually do these kind of displays. The thing that was strange, though, is that for me and people uh, and for other people of our generation, seeing these lines that represent 3D objects generated by a computer and you could walk around with them, it was just mind-blowing. But then you show it to kind of the general public and to them, they're just a series of lines. You know, it it took some imagination. It, It reminded me of the early days of recorded music. And you've heard what the very early 
record players sounded like, you know, in the 1920s, the incredibly strange. But at the time, that was a revelation that he could play real music in the household. And people were asked at the time in the 1920s, can you tell the difference between that record and a live performance? And most people said they could not, they sounded the same. In other words, there are expectations for the fidelity of devices changes over time as it improves. Uh, and certainly, you know, we now laugh today in a Hollywood movie where the CGI looks a little fake and forget that, you know, 40 years ago, putting a couple of lines on a screen that moved around as if it was a 3D object would make people like me weaken our knees. got people very excited. The administration of Plato, of course, hated us because we soaked up their entire computer, which cost millions of dollars. Uh, but I think that other people saw the potential that this have, where you could have people interacting with each other. And, and simultaneous with AeroFight, the communications features of Plato really came to the forefront. That was about the time that Talkomatic and Notes were invented, where basically they invented a, a system that, that's pretty much identical to the email system that we use today. And we had uh, basically a, a messaging system that was actually superior to texting today, because every time you pressed a key, that key showed up on the other terminal. And so this all became this big thing of it isn't just sitting down in front of a computer and doing something, it's sitting down in front of the computer doing something while you're interacting with a group of people who are also in front of those computers. All that said, Brand was terrible at his own game. It was very frustrating because I programmed it and I knew how airplanes flew. My, my dad was a pilot and I subsequently took flight lessons. I'm, I'm a pilot now. The thing that was really frustrating was that people would shoot down other people by using the rudder to turn left and right, which you never do in a real airplane. And so the other gamers were using imperfections in my, or imprecisions in my flight equations to win the game. And so I could never win. I was always getting shot down because I knew how planes flew. I knew how things should work, not how they were actually implemented. FIT's popularity proved a problem for Plato's processing capabilities. You only needed around 30 people to be playing simultaneously to bring the mainframe to its knees. And so uh, the powers that be of Plato basically told us that we could only allow that game to run after 10 p.m. at night, uh, and which we did. 
at one point, late at night, we were using 75% of the processing power of the mainframe computer of people running AirFight. Uh, I made a technical decision that turned out to be problematic in that every time you press next, next key was our, was our enter key, you updated your time by one second and updated everything else. And so that meant every time you press next, you could, in essence, go faster, uh, which was a mistake. After a couple of months, Brown decided to rewrite it from scratch, all on his own, without Kevin Gorey's help. But that next bug remained. He would eventually go back and rewrite the game again in the 1980s to fix the next bug and improve the flight equations, and also to fix another bug that temporarily broke the simulation whenever you pointed the aircraft straight up or straight down. It's called Air Salmon, and at that point, nobody cared anymore. So it was like the, the first version is the one people remember. The heyday of air fight lasted less than a year before Empire, a similarly groundbreaking 2D multiplayer space game, stole its thunder. But that short time was enough for Airfight to make a big impact. Probably the most important person who played my game was a student called Bruce Artwick, who, you know, I knew just casually he was one of the gamers there. And so, so now we go to the, the mid to late 70s, uh, where Airfight was not as popular as it was, but it was still there and people still played it. And the Apple II had come out. Brand had been asked several times about doing an Apple II version of Airfight, but he always said no. He didn't think it could work. Uh, we were using uh, true physics uh, equations, which are inherently floating point. And we were using a mainframe computer that was optimized for floating point calculations. And the Apple II did not have a floating point processor. It could only do fixed point calculations. So it just, it didn't seem like it was possible. Well, Bruce Artwick, this gamer that had been using it, uh, decided that it was possible. And he did put a, a flight simulator on Apple II that was obviously inspired by his time on Airfight. And Bruce was a, a very nice guy. I, I, years later, I talked to him and we had nice conversations. And so Bruce Artwick started a company based around the flight simulator he wrote for the Apple II. That, that company was called Sublogy, uh, which was subsequently purchased by Microsoft. Under Microsoft's wing, Flight Simulator became the most popular computer game series in the world, capable of selling personal computers all on its own and soon to be copied and imitated by scores of others, all won over by the dreams of virtual flight. Brand, meanwhile, moved away from game development, though not entirely by choice. This is going to sound weird. Software in my generation was free. In other words, the original model was software was used to sell the computer, which cost millions of dollars. And so the thought that you could make money with software didn't occur to us in the 1970s. Uh, and then when Control Data took a more active role in Plato, they took my program, Airfight, and actually published it, made it available, and gave me a, a royalty for software, which 
just blew all of our minds. Uh, and in fact, for many years in the early 80s, I was the top royalty getter from any computer game. Uh, and I, I was getting as much as $2,000 a year for, in royalties for the use of my game. Uh, and so it wasn't until much later, probably the mid to late 80s, that people thought about actually making serious money with, uh, with computer software. Uh, you know, so it wasn't until uh, the IBM PC and then somewhat later the, uh, the first Macintosh came out that there was this big rush to do software. And by that time, I was already in graduate school uh, in physics. And so the opportunity kind of passed inside. Brand went on to co-found the company to develop scientific software for the Macintosh, a company that found immense success when it published the Mosaic web browser, the first widely available web browser, which had been developed by current staff at the supercomputing center where he worked back when he was at graduate school. He bounced around the science and technology space for a while after that, and now works as a professor at North Carolina State University, where he teaches physics, astronomy, and astrophysics. You can play Airfight today using virtual terminals from CyberOne, a system that preserves Plato in a living archive, exploring the Plato universe. It's absolutely fascinating if you're even remotely interested in computer history. You can also read more about Plato games in an Ars Technica article of mine and about the full history of Plato and its community in an upcoming book by Brian Deere. I'll have links to both of those in the show notes. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. This week's episode also includes a few public domain music recordings from the 1920s and some Creative Commons music by Evan Schaefer. If you enjoyed the show, please tell other people about it. It'll also be a huge help if you leave a rating and review on iTunes and share this episode on social media. The Life and Times of Video Games is on Twitter at Life and Times VG. If you can afford to make a monthly donation to help me get the show to a point of long-term sustainability, head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. As thanks, you can get things like ad-free episodes and bonus content, and even the chance to pick a topic and boss me around on a future episode. And you'll be able to find links to everything mentioned here through the website lifeandtimes.games. Coming up next time, we have a story about artist Mark Ferrari and his incredible pixel graphics innovations in the late 1980s and the 90s. My name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. I wanna be loved by you, just you and no one.